You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Michael Presti, who is a longtime award-winning insightful and uh, dare I say prolific sports writer not only uh, here in Indiana as a native Hoosier but he's covered so many events there's just no way we could talk about them all in one podcast Uh, a very quick list would include 40 final fours 30 Super Bowls 31 NBA finals 32 World Series 31 Masters tournaments more than 40 major college bowl games, and 16 Olympic games. So Mike has basically chronicled my entire adult life. Thank you for doing so. Well, you're welcome. I've chronicled a lot of my adult life too, so. (laughs) You're a native Hoosier. You're born in Richmond, as I recall, and went to Ball State. Did you hear that, Danielle Shockey? Uh, You have a Ball State grad on the podcast. Was the sports bug or the sports writing bug something that you uh, caught early? Yeah, actually, I started writing sports for my junior high newspaper. Uh, It was a a, a middle school called Pleasant View. I've forgotten the name of the newspaper, but I started writing a little bit there and then through high school. uh, I'd always, uh, when I was younger, grown up just assuming I was going to be a big-time athlete, and then at some point in time, I realized that I was missing couple of things there one was size and the other one was talent but I still uh, enjoyed being around sports uh, I enjoyed writing and more than that I enjoyed being around the people uh, and that's always been the thing that's sort of driven me more than the games it, it, are, the, are the people and the stories and that sort of thing so I I kind of caught that bug early and, and worked through high school and actually uh, when I was at Ball State I was uh, writing for the Richmond uh, newspaper a regular newspaper played him item uh, which was a great experience for a college kid. Now the downside is I, I went you know, to Ball State my entire career, and I don't. I think I spent two weekends my entire college career on campus, so I sort of <laughs> missed that part of being a college kid. Um, but it was nice on the weekend, making a little money too, and I was certainly getting a lot of experience. So uh, uh, that worked out pretty well, and then just just went from there. What would you consider your quote unquote big break? Well, uh, a couple things. Number one, Gannett um, acquired the Palladium in, in the, um, the mid-70s. 
And so when I got out of school, um, the Palladium, instead of being this small little uh, community paper, was was part of a big chain. And and there's there's pluses and minuses to that. And probably as we've gone along through the years, more minuses. So back then, one good thing that worked out for me, they decided Gannett had a had a wire service, their own wire service that. Uh, sent stories to all their papers, and which at that point in time got up to nearly 100. And they wanted someone to do national sports uh, for that wire service. And so they came to me for that offer. And uh, that was a great break for a couple of reasons. I, I was a Midwestern guy, and I kind of wanted to stay in the Midwest if at all possible. And they really didn't care where I lived um, because I was going to be you know, roaming from here to, to, to wherever. Uh, so that was good. And secondly, it gave me an opportunity to cover a lot of big events at a, at a relatively uh, young age. So, um, you know, we kind of start from there. So that's where those numbers you, you reeled off a little while ago. That's one reason why those numbers are so large. I was able to, I was able to start that and, uh, uh, start young and start early. And, and back then, uh, you can tell this a long time ago. Money was no object with newspapers back then. You know, <laughs> if they wanted me to go somewhere, hey, yeah, let's go, let's go here, let's go there, and you didn't have the uh, the budgetary restraints and the staff size restraints and all the other restraints you see. Was in many ways strangling print journalism now, but back then there was a lot of opportunity. So that that was that was the big break. And then second of all, when USA Today was created by Gannett, uh, that that provided another outlet and. Uh, as the years went by, I, I, I still did a lot of stuff for the Gannett. They call it Gannett News Service, that wire service. But then I started doing a lot more for USA Today as well. So between those two things, it, it gave me the opportunity and the chance to, to get to a lot of events and see a lot of things. And I'll you know, forever be thankful for that opportunity. You mentioned USA Today. It derided it at its inception uh, as yeah. Paper. It's become a force. I remember it having the best sports page in the world. Uh, I think, it, I don't know if USA Today is at the early 80s. I was in high school, I think. Sorry, Mike. Yeah. When it came, when, when it came <laughs> out. It. Just stick in the knife and twist it there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it came out in 82. And um, I had to, uh, I was invited slash volunteered slash drafted to go in and, and help uh, when it first got started, which was kind of exciting. Although, uh, as you, as you mentioned, the, 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 the running joke, the McPaper, you know, back then they didn't want anything more than about six or seven or eight paragraphs. Yeah. Uh, so from a writing standpoint, it was, it was pretty difficult. Uh, but I was there for the first few months. Uh, and then after that, we, we I had an option where if I want to stay full time or go back to what I was doing with the, with the news service. And I, 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 quickly took the, the second option but but it was it was it was quite a I, I still remember that I was in Washington and the Gannett office right outside Washington I was in there when they announced what they were this idea they announced it at the publishers meeting one year and you know nobody knew really what they were talking about and then to see all the energy and, and all the money that went into it it was it was quite the enterprise it, I'll, I'll forever have a little piece of it I don't I don't even know if it's there anymore but but for a long time at the Gannett office, they had a, a, a statue in the lobby of a, of a guy reading the first um, USA Today. And I believe it was August 15th or September 15th, 1982. I think September 15th. And um, 
if you look at the paper there in bronze, there, there's a there's a on, on on page one there's a little reference box to a football story inside. Well, that was my story. <laughs> so uh, not that my not that my name was on it, but I, at least I knew whenever I saw that statue. Hey, that's I, I'm I'm there. <laughs> now I don't know if that statue might be long gone, uh, but. Uh, uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting experience to go through that, and it was new, and it it, it certainly uh, had its impact on the way a lot of newspapers presented the news with more color and and more art and more graphs and that sort of thing. And and then as the years went by, it sort of morphed into a little bit more of a regular newspaper. They started looking at longer stories and different styles and different tones, and, uh, so that it made it a little more enjoyable as far as a writer to work there. Well, the sports page was spectacular. Uh, the paper was in color. A lot of papers weren't. That was something that caught the eye. And uh, let me make a statement. Every once in a while on these podcasts, I make a provocative, a provocative excuse me, or <clears throat> a semi-provocative statement and, and let the guest uh, support or refute. So let me make one and ask your opinion. Sports pages sell newspapers. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I think that was a, 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 probably one of the better examples of that. Uh, now, they don't sell newspapers uh, 365 days a year. I think 365 days a year, things like obituaries and weather and, and, and news sell papers. But if you go to different places, if something really interesting is happening in that area uh, for a local team, uh, you bet you. I mean, and you just... It, it, that that has always been the case. Uh, and, you go into you go into a city. You know how you could always tell that when I'd be covering, let's say, a World Series in some city, and and that the home team won, and the next morning <laughs> you're flying out, and you go to the newsstand at the airport to buy the local papers, they're gone. I mean, they're gone. Well, I don't think they're probably gone any other you know many other days of the week at at 9 a.m. But they're gone then because the, the stories were in there about the, the game the night before. So uh, I think, yeah, it, it certainly can be an engine from time to time to really uh, drive up circulation. When I was in the Army, the USA Today, and I want to ask you about another entity, uh, was the only way that I could follow Indianapolis sports or – Indiana Hoosiers or, or Notre Dame football on a regular basis is because USA Today had such a national reach. But I want to ask you about the, the introduction of the USA Today sports page along with the emergence, and it was founded a few years before 1982, but the emergence of ESPN. They kind of came to maturation at the same time. Do you think one fed off the other or they were just kind of independent? I think USA Today in many ways fed off of ESPN. Now ESPN was about three years younger. I think it came out in 79. So um, they can say they got there first. And, and, and certainly as the years went by, I think you're right. They like fed off one another. But I think a driving force to the way, ES, uh, the way USA Today went at things, uh, particularly with the sports section, was off of ESPN. I mean, there was this great appetite out there that people didn't really believe. If you go back to 1980, ESPN was sort of a, a running joke for people because back <laughs> then they didn't have enough programming to fill it. And, and always the, 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 the thing that always people talked about back then, to fill those hours overnight, they would often have Australian rules football. 
Now, there's not a real big market in the U.S. for Australian rules football, but there would be hours upon hours of that on ESPN because they didn't have anything else to fill it with. This is before the, you know, a lot of things, stuff they have now. So back then, there was a lot of people wondering. There were a lot of people wondering, hey, you know, this is nice during the Final Four or Super Bowl week, but 52 weeks a year. Uh, but obviously that, that came out to be the case that, yeah, there was a market for it and an appetite for it. And I think USA Today since that and, and sort of piggybacked on that. You mentioned that your you, the journalism writing bug caught you early, but do you remember the first big sporting event that you saw or heard as a kid? Um, I'll, I'll... Uh, well, I can remember both. Well, there are different ones. I mean, the first big one I heard, I was a big baseball fan back in the 60s. I can remember uh, – and I wasn't the only kid for sure who did this, taking a radio to school back then in the days when the World Series was played during the day. And I always remember game seven of the 1968 World Series of the uh, Cardinals and the Tigers. Mm -hmm. And I took a radio in to listen to during Latin class and the Latin teacher caught me. (laughs) She wasn't much of a baseball fan. And to this day, I remember her saying, you know, I think Latin is so much more exciting than the World Series. Is, <laughs> was it a Catholic school, world, Mike? I agree with that. <laughs> was it a, was it a Catholic school? Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, just a, a very avid Latin fan, Latin teacher. So, you know, I, those are the first things I listened to. You know, the first thing I covered, I, I, I was fortunate. And when I was at the Palladium, you know, Richmond's about an hour and 10 minutes outside of Cincinnati. And... I was uh, I was working for the Palladium, and obviously at a paper that size, their main thrust is local sports. But I talked them into letting me go to do a lot of Reds games because that was the big Red Machine era, and there was a lot of interest in that. Now they didn't. I did virtually all of that for free. I mean, I you know I, I did my forty hours doing high school and things like that that you do with a paper that size. But but I thought it was important enough. Plus, it was a great experience. I, I probably covered forty or fifty games a year of the Reds. And that included the World Series back in the mid-70s. So there I was from a small little paper in Indiana covering the 75 and 76 World Series. So that would have been the first big event I covered for anybody uh, as far as uh, for the Palladium, those World Series games. The games that were in Cincinnati, they weren't going to send me to to Boston in 75 or to New York in 76. But Let's but talk about that. Go ahead. No, you finish. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, because I'm a lifelong uh, Cincinnati Reds fan who went to those games in 74, 75, 76, 77, when the Reds were so good in the early half of the 70s. So I definitely want to ask you about that, but finish your thought, please. Well, the other thing that was interesting about the first big event I covered actually for in my job with Gannett, because of the, uh, you want to talk about a contrast, I went from the Richmond paper directly to Gannett News Service, which meant that um, one weekend I was covering the junior high city wrestling meet for Richmond Palladium, <laughs> and the next week, seven days later, or eight days later, I was covering the Super Bowl. Um, which little, Super Bowl? <laughs> uh, then the uh, one in Pontiac, uh, the Bengals and the 49ers. That would have been Super Bowl 16. Um, so, um, yeah, <laughs> a little bit uh, diving into the Diving in the pool, although I had covered, uh, you know, like I said, you know, I'd been at the World Series and, and, and I'd done, you know, I'd been at a major league ballpark several times. So it wasn't like I wasn't used to, to being around a big event, but certainly the first time is my regular full-time job. That, that was the first time. 
You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We were on today with Hall of Famer, and he is a Hall of Famer, Mike Lepresti. He's been inducted into the Halls of Fame for the United States Basketball Writers Association, the Indiana Sports Writers and Sportscasters Association, and his alma mater, the Ball State Journalism Department. He currently writes for the Indianapolis Business Journal. He has covered four decades or more depending on how you count it, sporting events throughout the United States. And we're very, very lucky to have him. Mike, is there a, as a lifelong Hoosier, is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire in any field? Well, you know, obviously I I grew up a great basketball fan. And, um, you know, the easy thing is to say, well, I, you know, guy like Larry Bird. Um, and I did, I admire, I, 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 I covered that year in 79. I didn't cover the final four. In fact, that's the last year I didn't cover the final four was as luck would have it. I missed the, the bird magic Johnson game, but I certainly admired his impact on the game and the way he played the game. But the guy I really always admired because just as a person he was on top of being uh, a legend and, and his success in the field was John Wooden. Um, I, uh, I was not covering UCLA back in the John Wooden days, but I had occasion to talk to him a number of times after that for for various different stories. Oh, that's great! And just just the just the, the the his demeanor and and um, the way he handled his success and and the way he thought of his success and the way he impacted a lot of other people. I think probably of all the the people with Indiana roots, I would probably admire him as much as anyone. Just a few days ago, I watched the Sports Century on Bill Walton. And <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Bill Walton was a, a three-time National Player of the Year, went to UCLA, won two national championships, was part of the team that had the 88-game winning streak that was snapped by uh, Notre Dame. But Walton was a very uh, outspoken um, member of his generation. That's probably the nicest way I can put it. And Wooden was obviously of a much different generation. And how John Wooden handled Bill Walton's activism is a real study in mentorship. Is that something you ever had a chance to ask him about? Well, I talked to him several, uh, several times, uh, sort of including that. Uh, the last time I did a, a long thing on, on Walton was actually would have been in 2014. It would have been the um, the 40-year anniversary of when they lost. In the North Carolina State? Yeah, North Carolina State. And um, I I don't know of anyone who still openly – you know, everyone lives with defeats, or or most athletes will live with a painful defeat, maybe the rest of their lives to some degree. I mean, most people get over it. But I don't know of anyone who still openly – is in anguish over a loss than Bill Walton is over that, that, that game. 
And he's very, very honest and candid in how much responsibility he takes for that because back then he refused to listen to John Wooden. You know, he refused to buy a lot of what John Wooden was trying to sell. And, and now there is no bigger proponent of the John Wooden legacy than Bill Walton. I mean, there's that. Right. But, but I remember I was, I was at a basketball tournament somewhere, NCAA tournament, and I was in the press room, and, and it was the time I was supposed to call Walton for the story. And I had about 15 minutes before the game started. So I thought, well, you know, in 15 minutes, we can probably get this done. I almost missed the entire first half. Because when Bill Walton starts talking about how much he still grieves that, that loss and what happened to that team, he, he is not a man of few words on anything, and he's certainly not a man of few words on that. And he just, to listen to him talk about, you know, how much he respects, not only how much he respects John Wooden, but how much he regrets that he didn't take full advantage of the opportunity he had when John Wooden was his coach and, and the way it ended for him and to lose to a game and lose the chance of, three consecutive championships and it's just uh uh the man still bleeds over that and, and did he uh, uh, did he cop to the terrible block charge call uh, against uh steve downing in the against iu in the 73 <laughs> no that one didn't that one didn't come up well, uh the leaders and legends podcast wants to know mike so if you get a chance to talk <laughs> to him again <laughs> yeah that's uh that's one of those calls. Uh, calls live forever too. Not only defeats, but sometimes questionable calls live forever too. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll remember that and bring that up. Although usually when something like that happens, the folks remember it a different way. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, he's he certainly uh, uh, takes full accountability for UCLA not winning the championship senior year. You started, and we're going to go right here to the to the big red machine. Uh, my older brothers and my sister and, and other folks of that era who are a little bit older than me, I graduated from high school in 86, uh, but my brothers and sisters were 76, 77, 79, uh, respective. Say the 70s had the best of everything, the best music, the best movies, and the best sports. And sometimes I like to argue it as a child of the 80s, and sometimes you just kind of have to concede defeat. Um, Certainly, it is true that the 1970s had some phenomenal sporting events and teams. Uh, like a lot of folks, I grew up a Cincinnati Reds fan, not only because of its proximity to uh, here, but also because the Indianapolis Indians were their AAA farm team. What was it like covering the Big Red Machine, who made it to the World Series in 70 and 72 and lost, and then won in 75, 76? Uh, did you get a chance to talk to a lot of the players? Did you get the sense you were witnessing greatness? And what part of it do you hold today as, wow, I was just lucky? Well, I'll tell you one thing, and, and to this day, it is still the best team of any sport to cover that I've ever been around. And I've been around a lot of champions. That team, and it's one of those things you really didn't appreciate. You, I think at the time you appreciated how good they were. All you had to do was look at the numbers and, and look at October. Uh, but I don't think, and, and a lot of other folks who covered them back then, we, we still from time to time talk about this, we didn't realize how good we had it as far as what it was like to cover that team for a lot of different reasons. 
number one, obviously they were good. I mean, you knew you were watching good baseball. You were watching, and you knew at the time you were watching several future Hall of Fames. I mean, there wasn't a big secret about that. And I include, you know, where you go pro or con on whether Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. You're watching a Hall of Fame caliber player. And you certainly were watching a Hall of Famer in Joe Morgan. You were certainly watching a Hall of Famer in Johnny Bench. Uh, and I always thought you were watching a Hall of Famer in Tony Perez. But, but anyway, uh, above and beyond uh, how good they were just playing the game, it's the, it's the kind of clubhouse that was. From a journalist standpoint, you couldn't get better. Because first of all, you had the, all, their, all their stars were extremely media savvy and media friendly. I mean, you, you, if you couldn't get good stories, good quotes out of Morgan or Rose or Bench, you really weren't trying. So you had that. And, and, and above, and above all that, when it came to quotes, you had Sparky Anderson. I mean, it, it, sometimes it was hard to get by the manager's office because Sparky would just talk forever and ever. And he was very good with the media. So you had that. Then when you got into the role players, you had guys that, that just accepted that role and they were good people. And then when you went into the pitching staff and they were just sort of, you know, no one remembers the pitching staff and the big red machine much. These were just normal Joes. You know, they had a reliever named Clay Carroll. He is, his personality was that of a guy you would meet, you know, at a local pub. Uh, you had starters named Jack Billingham and Fred Norman. And these were as, these could be your neighbor. I mean, that's the kind of guys they were. So you had this great mix of superstars who, who, who never minded talking to the media and average Joes who, who, you know, were as approachable as you get. And I'll tell you what, in a lot of baseball clubhouses, that's not the case. There is nothing more intimidating to a, to a reporter, especially if you're, a, you know, not from that team, not from that town, if you're, an, if you're a stranger. It can be pretty unpleasant to walk into a baseball clubhouse. It's not a real open place in a lot of places. Cincinnati, it couldn't be. It couldn't be better. So you throw all that together, plus the fact they were winning, which a lot of times, uh, you know, covers up everything else. Anyway, uh, it, it was a great experience. And, and for a young guy, I didn't realize at the time. I thought it, covering everything would be like that. Well, no, I've never been around a team that was better, from my standpoint, from a working sports writer standpoint, to cover than than the Reds of the mid seventies. Of all the baseball teams that you've covered. Would you put the 1975 Cincinnati Reds, who beat the Red Sox four to three uh, in the World Series, and won 108 games? And other teams have won more games, and other teams have won more World Series. Would you put that at the very top, or at least on your Mount Rushmore of greatest teams you've ever seen in baseball? Yeah, although I'm not so sure they weren't better in '76. I remember 76, they did something that no team to this day has done. Oh, yeah, that's uh, right. They went through, the, went through the postseason unbeaten. Now, to be fair, they only had two rounds where they had to play, you know, they only had to win seven games where that's far fewer than you have to win today to do that. But um, they, you know. Swept the I, I Phillies. Probably. The Phillies and then swept the Yankees. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Phillies and the Yankees. And uh, so. Between those two teams, I'd hate to pick. But I think if you take those two together, um, they certainly were as good, if not better, than any team I've personally seen. Um, you know, you think about the Yankees of the late 90s. 
uh, I, I'm not sure they were as dominating in their season as if you look at the Detroit Tigers in '84. Sure. Where they just they just went wire to wire and no one ever touched them. Did uh, they start out like 35 and five or something yeah, ridiculous? 35 and five. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they they weren't that way. In fact, 75 Reds uh, in the, in mid May were really struggling, and that's the famous switch in the the lineup. Mm-hmm. that Sparky Anderson made where he moved Pete Rose to third base, which allowed him to get uh, George Foster into the lineup. And, and from then on, it just, everything just clicked and they went from there. But um, I think if you look at their entire body of work, I'm not sure anyone in the last 40 or 50 years, is, I'm sure, in my opinion, no one's any better. And there would be a couple that you could approach that. Now, then you start talking about the great Yankees teams of the past, you know, I remember at the time in 75, 76, the great debate was, okay, are they as good or right. better than the 27 Yankees? Well, that's a, how do you answer that? I mean, I'm not sure how you decide that. That's, that's entirely a subjective argument. It's fun to make, fun debate to have, but I'm not sure there's a, there's a clear-cut answer to it. But, but certainly they would be on the short list of great, great teams. The unfortunate thing is they were done too soon. I mean, the, the night of the – I always remember this. The night they won, it clinched it in 76, the Yankees. Bob Housen, who was the general manager, who was the architect of this team, said, we will never see anything like this again. And you thought, well, these guys are not very old. Uh, you know, they've still got some of this left on. Well, it turned out they didn't. I mean, you never saw them. The next time you saw the Reds in the World Series was 1990. So, um, you know, that team that burned so brightly in 75, 76, things – some things went kind of sour and hurt. Um, but one of the but, one of the sure. best books I've ever sports books I've ever read, and I recommend this to anyone who's a fan of the '70s or a fan of baseball, but particularly a fan of the Cincinnati Reds. It's a book called Game Six. The author is Mark Frost, and it's really a detailing of the '75 World Series, which most people acknowledge is in the top three or four World Series of all time, not only because of the quality of play and the, and the quality of the players, but also because of what it meant for television and baseball at the time. So look up the book, Game 6, Cincinnati, Boston, and the 1975 World Series, The Triumph of America's Pastime. And that will fill in many of the gaps that we wouldn't have time to talk about today. What often gets forgotten about that famous Game 6 is uh, they got a nor'easter in Boston, and right. the World Series was postponed for three days. The first five games of that series had been very, very good. It had been close, it had been back and forth, there had been some controversy with the home plate deal with Ed Umbras and all that. But I remember the, the theme on the third day of the rainout is, well, it's too bad that Mother Nature has absolutely killed the drama in this World Series. Because you can <laughs> imagine just sitting around for three days and watching it rain. Well, game six quickly got rid of that thing. But it was funny going into that game six, the people were saying, boy, this is a great World Series, but now it's lost all its mojo because it seems like forever since they played last. You mentioned him earlier, so uh, we can get your opinion on this. Does Pete Rose belong in the Hall of Fame, A, and B, do you think he'll ever get there? I think he will get there. I'll answer in reverse order. I think he will get there. I'm not sure he will live to see it. Um, I think there will be down the road where they, 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 they go back and look at the veterans and that sort of thing. The guys who didn't get in their regular voting method. Uh, I think, it, you know, 
sooner or later he will be there. Time, time heals all, but sometimes it takes a long time. And certainly he has not helped himself. Um, I'm, I've been a Hall of Fame voter. And She's I getting ready to ask that, that, actually. Yeah, I've, I'm a Hall of Fame voter. Now I'll be a Hall of Fame voter for three more years. Um, uh, once you retire and you're no longer in the Baseball Writers Association or an active member, then then you have 10 more years to vote. So I, I, when I retired from USA in, in 2013, uh, then I ceased being an active Baseball Writers Association. So I, I will vote through 2023. Um, you know, I would have liked to have seen his name on the, on the ballot. Uh, but I could understand baseball a little bit on it too. I mean, uh, there are so many times you wanted to say to him, Pete, don't say this, don't do this, say that and do that. And, and eventually you will win them over, but he, whatever, whatever it's his pride or his ego or, or blind spot or whatever. Uh, he did a lot of things that didn't help himself during that time. So, uh, you know, I think he should be there. You know, forever is a long time. I think he will be there eventually, and once he's there, he'll he'll be there forever. But I, I'm, and it'll be it'll be sad. Uh, I'm not sure he will be alive to see it. As I tell my clients, you know, PR is everything. It's what you say. It's how you act. It's the, um, it's what you give off in terms of achievement or humility and contrition. And I, to your point, I, I completely agree. Rose certainly deserves to be in the Hall of Fame for what he did on the field. And it's ironic that what he did off the field is what's keeping out of, out of something that is clearly so important to him. I mean, you cannot think of 60s, 70s, and 80s baseball without thinking of Pete Rose. He was MVP and multiple World Series champion and probably has the most iconic play in the history of the Major League All-Star game. I think it was 1970 when he ran over Ray Fossey. I mean, who the hell takes out a catcher in an all-star game? That's unfathomable today. But to him, it was just another play, trying to win. And that game was in Cincinnati. I mean, it was, it was the perfect moment. Uh, the first year at Riverfront Stadium. That's right. Uh, yeah, I think, I think he will, in many ways, maybe one of the more tragic stories of, of the era because here is a guy whose who's love for baseball is, is unquestioned and, and deeper than almost anyone. And the game that he loved is, is turned out to be his most implacable enemy. Uh, that it, it just will not bend on this. And I, I don't know if he convinced himself that sooner or later, because he loved baseball so, baseball would love him back, and he could still, you know, say some of the things he did or, or not take some of the accountability that he didn't take early on, and maybe fib a little here and uh, exaggerate there and, and spin somewhere else. But uh, it hadn't turned out that way. In the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the ongoing argument between generations about which is better, my decade or your decade, uh, when it gets to be my turn to uh, extol the virtues of the 1980s in sports during the 1980s, uh, I always start with what to me is the single most iconic sporting uh, happenstance event in the history of the United States. And that's Washington's birthday, February 22nd, 1980. The United States hockey team beats the Soviet Union four to three. Uh, you wrote about that just a couple of months ago in the Indianapolis Business Journal. 
what did that event mean to you and how difficult is it for you as a writer to tell the tale of something so incredibly gargantuan in terms of an upset and an iconic event in sports? Is it just difficult, whether it's this event or other events, to find the right words? Yeah, the event that comes to mind for me more because I, I wasn't at that game. So I wasn't writing that day. Now, as time goes by and you look back on it, you feel a little bit more comfortable in writing about it. But I've had a, a few times where the moment it happened, I'd say to myself, I don't know if I have the words that will do this justice. Um, and the one that really comes to mind is the 1986 Masters when Jack Nicklaus won at the age of 46. And you know, Augusta is as emotional a place and as, as uh, when it just the aura of, of the environment and the atmosphere is it, so real and so vivid as any sports venue probably anywhere. And so you're there and that's going on. And then the story itself where you've got a guy like Jack Nicklaus that most people had written off as being finished basically as far as winning the events coming from way behind on Sunday and, and winning, you know, the masters at, at, at his age. I just remember thinking that Sunday afternoon, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have the words to say this now in my particular job, a lot of the events, uh, I had an, a built-in excuse because the thing about writing for the wire service, like I did for Gannett all those years, my deadline on night events, and there's so many sports events at night, would be five minutes after the game. So however dramatic, however however emotional, however big the moment was, a lot of times I, I felt like I didn't have the words, but probably the clock wasn't going to let me find the words. You know, the thing about the Masters there, Nicholas, you know, that ends that ends like 6 or 7 o'clock. You have a little time to write then. So if you don't find the words, it's your own fault. And so I certainly felt that way. Now, going back to, to your point there on, 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 uh, on 1980, um, I would have loved to have been there, but I, that, I'm sure that would have been one of those moments of, hey, can I do this thing justice? I mean, it, 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 I would agree with you. It is certainly one of the – one of the iconic moments. As a matter of fact, uh, one story I did for USA Today at the end of the uh, last century, they're going into 2000, is I, I picked 20 things that if I could go back in the 20th century to watch, just to have a ticket, <laughs> just to watch, what, what, what 20 sports events would I like to go back and watch? And and I believe I had that as number two. So it's it's high up there. And, uh, it was number one. Uh, that was Jesse Owens. Um uh, and you could, and, you know, anyone could argue that's why he went. Jesse Owens the day at, in, in Berlin, uh, where he won, and you know Hitler walked out and all that sort of thing. Uh, I guess probably that held a little bit more mystique to me because I wasn't even alive when that happened. And, you know, I didn't see it on TV, so I mean, I would have liked to have seen that. So, but, but certainly, you, uh, the Miracle on Ice is one of the things that it's. It was tape delayed. Most of us watched right. it on black and white television. Uh, I was at the Ellenberger Ice Rink in Irvington on the east side uh, that night. So, so no one knew that this incredible upset had won. They asked Jim McKay, the famous ABC um, sports broadcaster, to compare it to something. And he compared it to 
a Canadian college football team beating the Pittsburgh Steelers. When you read uh, stories about it, they, they grasp at it. And like, we, we just yeah. can't describe that there's no chance in hell these guys should have ever won. That, it, it, plus what was going on in the United States, you know, politically and economically, there were lots of things that fed into it. But I loved your article about it uh, that was in uh, February that you wrote for the IBJ. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it, you, it had the whole package, like you said. I mean, number one, the greatest moment in sports, in any sport, usually nine times out of ten will be a big upset. That's the thing that people just love. So it had certainly had that. Then when you add on, and then this is the thing that people now, younger people now would never understand what the tone of the Cold War was like then, what the tone of the country was then with the, with the uh, uh, hostage crisis and, and, and all the other things that had been going on. Uh, I suppose in, in a little bit of analogy to today's world, I mean, it's not that there's a Cold War going out there, but the mood of the country is certainly is with everything that's been going on the last couple of months, certainly is as probably as dark as it was back then, but it, for a very different reason. But yeah, if you put all that together and then you, you add in the, the great upset, I mean, had that been against Canada, uh, a bunch of Canadian professionals, it, it would have been a big upset people would remember, but nowhere, it, it was the Russians. And in a way, <laughs> the Olympics, the Olympics have... In a way, in the last 20 years, I covered a whole bunch of Olympics, and, and what, what was lost through the years, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I'm just saying it is, is that great Cold War rivalry. I mean, the, 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 the sort of the side effect of this, 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 you know, these two countries in the world being at each other's throat all the time, which is bad, but, in, but it certainly made for dr drama in sports. So. Uh, you know, in 72, the, 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 when, when the U.S. basketball team lost, and it's the first time they'd ever lost in the Olympics. Well, if they'd lost to Brazil, uh, that would have been a story. Um, but they lost to the Russians. Well, that and made it more than can I say? Can I and, say they were cheated? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. More too. than once? Uh, yeah, that too. So, um, you know, so to that a hockey moment, uh, certainly – yeah, it, 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 you mentioned Mount Rushmore. The Mount Rushmore of great events in the, in the 20th century, uh, certainly you would have one spot there for the uh, U.S. hockey team. You mentioned covering a lot of Olympic games. and Since, I, I, I'm going to make this statement and you please push back, but since the 1980 upset in Lake Placid in the hockey portion of the games, probably the biggest – media spotlight on anything since then has been the 1992 dream team men's basketball. Did you get to cover them? And if you did, what was that like? I covered a few of their games. Now, the thing about it was, um, I, I, I enjoyed the spectacle of it and certainly, uh, the impact it was having on those people around the world, you know, and how they view basketball. And I think the impact of that you see to this day in the NBA with this great influx of, of international players, well, a lot of that started in, in, in 92 when, when all the way around the world, people kind of fell in love with the sport because of the dream team. So I understood that. But that again, what I, what I enjoy more than anything about the Olympics are the stories uh, that you never saw the other three years and 50 weeks, you know, of, of the cycle. I mean, just 
people from nowhere who had their moment in the sun and they would never have another moment. Uh, Give us an example, please. Um, and it's not, not necessarily Americans. Uh, the, the people I remember from the Olympics uh, in Seoul, Korea, I went to wrestling on a day that a guy from Korea was so poor, he had never slept in a bed. He had just slept on the ground his entire life. By then, he's like 23 or 24. He wins, wins a gold medal. Now, Korea, like every other country, uh, host country, usually has a deal in mind you know, to, for, their, for their own athletes. If you win a gold medal, you get X number of dollars. You know, U.S. does it, everybody does it. Well, this kid wins a gold medal, and he wins $50,000. Now, that would be for us a, a, a Powerball ticket of $100 million. You know, this guy had never slept before on a bed before you know to be there that moment to me that's the olympics i mean that, that that guy had worked his entire life for that moment and had he lost it would have been gone i mean it, 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 you know i can remember um as emotional probably a moment ever i've ever been around in sports uh, two of them involved the same guy and it's a speed skater named dan jansen so mm-hmm. in calgary in 1988, Dan, uh, Dan Jansen was one of the gold medal favorites. And the night of his specialty race, um, the day of the specialty race, his sister died of leukemia and back here in the U.S. And he was on the phone with her, basically saying goodbye to her just a few hours before he went to compete. And that night, I was there that night, and he fell. He fell in his race. You know, you think about a day like that. Uh, how horrible that was. And then as emotional as that was, as four years later, he was back in that event and he won the gold medal. And, you know, he, he had made that return, that great journey. And I was there for both of those moments. And the highest point of his life, or certainly his athletic life, and one of the lowest points in his life. And so those are the kind of Olympic moments why I really love going to the Olympics. Now, this is a long-winded answer to your question, but I, 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 I was... <laughs> There for I think three or four games of the dream team and and the hero worship the, the the fervor for them in Barcelona was really amazing to see so I'm glad I saw that but it's not I didn't want to spend that entire Olympics just on the dream team I mean to me they were a great story but they were a lot more to the Olympics than that and so I did see them and I understand their impact and I understand how big a moment that was for the game of basketball but but it wasn't the only thing I wanted to do in Barcelona. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Mike Lopresti, who is a longtime Hall of Fame sports writer, native Hoosier, graduate of Ball State. He's covered 40 Final Fours, 30 Super Bowls, 31 NBA Finals, 32 World Series, 31 Masters, more than 40 major college bowl games, and 16 Olympics. You mentioned earlier on the podcast about upsets and what a great story that is. It seems to me that the reciprocal of that almost is dominance. And let me ask you, throw two players, two people out there, and maybe you can talk for a few minutes about their dominance. One is Tiger Woods, especially the Masters. Was it 97 that he won by 12, 14 strokes? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And the other one is Michael Phelps. Sometimes upset yeah. grabs your attention. 
but there is something to be said for celebrating talent and just outright dominance of your opponent and your sport. I've always liked covering dynasties and I've always respected teams uh, that put together genuine dynasties. A lot of times fans root against teams if they won too much because they won too much. They want to see somebody else. <laughs> I have never understood that because I think the hardest, the single hardest thing to do, it seems to me in sports, is not only to get to the top, but to stay there. There are just so many, particularly in the modern age, there are so many things, so many forces pulling you away. You know, distractions and, and money and adulation and and egos and jealousies and all that so I, I i've always appreciated that i mean you know i've covered a lot of the yankees back here and, and people hated the yankees and i can understand if you're a red sox fan if you hate them but I, but it's just from a baseball thing <laughs> i never understood that i mean i you don't have to root for them but i certainly respect what they did and what you were talking about what duke has done with shashevsky through the years or ucla back in the day or the, the connecticut women in basketball you know, how hard that was. So if you look at two guys like that, um, you know, not only are they great and, 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 and great in a way that just puts them far and away ahead of anyone else in their era is the, the ability to stay there and to do that and, and uh, you know, to maintain the focus and to maintain all the things you need to do that because I don't care how good you are. It's easy to fall off that top. I mean, it's just easy. It just is. If it weren't hard, more people would do it. And so um, <laughs> I think, you know, I was there you know, at the Masters when Wood just, I mean, it, it was almost surreal because it's just not supposed to happen. Now, the thing about Phelps, his dominance is, is in his gold medal tonnage. I mean, he had races that were close. I mean, the, the one year where he won all his medals in the Olympics, he barely, you know, the, 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 uh, it's a, I forget who his teammate was in the relay, barely had to outstretch right. another swimmer to, to, to keep that going. So so his dominance is over a period of time and just the number of medals. But Woods, I mean, there would be times he would just run away and hide. And in golf, you're not supposed to be able to do that. And and so um, it was certainly um, it was certainly fascinating to watch. In Phelps's case, uh, I remember um, in Beijing, he was saying how he hoped this made swimming popular all the time, and not just once every four years. And I remember thinking at the time. I still think I'm probably right on this. I don't care how good you are. You can be Michael Phelps great. For the vast majority of American public fans, swimming is not going to be on their radar screen except once every four years. That's just the way it is. Unless you're like from Carmel, you know, you win all those high school championships or whatever. But, but, but I think it's time, you know, as great as this guy is, he just, not even he can make, you know, avid swimming fans, you know, 52 weeks a year of, of the American public. It's just not going to happen. Because uh, there's a rocket's red glare part of it, right? That that someone comes in or comes out of nowhere. I mean, not that swimming's not always important or, or popular or patriotic. Spitz certainly made it happen in 72. But you think of someone like Bobby Fischer. There was no coverage of chess at all prior to 1972. It dominated the news cycle for months in the middle of 72, and then it just kind of went away. There's this bright light that that creates a 
perhaps a boom, for lack of a better term, draws the media's attention. And to your point, it just isn't something that's going to be covered all the time. And again, uh, you know, the thing on the Bobby Fischer thing, who did he beat? He's <laughs> Russian. He's <a> Boris Baskin. <laughs> if, he be, if, he, if he beats, yeah, if he beats somebody from Switzerland, it's a story, but it's not that story. You know, again, you, you know, every sport needs a great rival, even even chess. And 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 you had a built-in rivalry at the time. We're, that's kind of taking you far afield there, but it's. It, it, uh, I, I think with Phelps. Um, you know, he was going after that, that record, the most gold medals, the most medals of anyone ever. You know, American fans love records, and they love to see records get set. And so I think he really had that going for him. You know, if Woods, I don't think he will, but if Woods ever gets to the point where he's not really knocking on Jack Nicklaus' door, uh, you know, then that'll take that story up another notch, too, because we just we just love, you know, covering records. What, in your mind, is the most unbreakable record in sports? If you had to bet the lives of your family, they'll live forever, and this record will never be broken. Which one would you well, choose? Baseball. There's several on baseball because it's such a different sport than it used to be. Uh, the 511 wins. Cy Young. Um, yeah. Good luck on that one. I mean, you know, <laughs> I just don't, you know, you don't, you don't pitch that often. There are a whole number of pitching records that, that you know, either forget what the record is for career complete games but i mean you know you, you see you see complete games like once every three weeks in major league baseball now where you know, guys that, so I, I i think you know a lot of baseball records like that now the modern ones that people would have some shot at you know the the maggio 56 game these three kids um i i you can you can say that no one will break now pete rose sort of nibbled at it but for all that big adulation over the Pete Rose thing, he still missed by 12 games. He missed by two weeks. That's right. So um, I, I think probably that one, that one comes to mind as far as the ones that you could see possibly. I mean, there's just no way anyone's ever going to win 500. Pitchers going to win 500 games. That's not going to happen. You can see how someone, you know, if everything went right, 56 games could make a run out, but I don't think anyone will. Like seasonal records, would you'd have a chance 56 games or, or you know the home runs or whatever but it's the career records and i agree with you in baseball especially that just there's no chance in in hell someone is going to win 512 major league baseball games and beat cy young's record yeah i'm not sure we'll see an nba player score 100 points in the game again uh i'm not sure i'll what about average? Back. Wilt Chamberlain, he's talking about what about average 50 points a game for an entire year? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, you know, I, I, another record I don't think we'll see is, you know, Pete Maravich still has the college. Oh, yeah, that's right. The 40, was it 44 points a game? 44, 44 a game. Uh, but the interesting part of that, I don't think we'll ever see a guy do that again and never play in the NCAA tournament. You know, Pete Maravich never played one second in the NCAA tournament. Of course, back then they were only taking 23 teams and only one team from conference, and so he wasn't going to pass Kentucky. But uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we'll ever see that happen. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, being a Hoosier and covering Hoosier teams and Hoosier sports. When you were really get hitting your stride as a sports writer, you had uh, Bobby Knight and Gene Cady and Lou Holtz and various other uh, players who you covered. 
And then I want to also ask you about the Indianapolis 500. You wrote a really good article uh, again in February about Butler and its run. What was it like being a Hoosier covering Hoosier sports? Well, I, I, I loved, as I mentioned earlier, I love basketball um, being a Hoosier. And to this day, I don't think I've ever covered anything, any event that I liked any better than the state high school tournament, particularly back in its heyday, back in its, in, in its classic days. Um, Cause I covered, you know, uh, in the seventies and eighties and, and, and high school basketball was just, just enormous. You know, I was there in 1990, the day they had 41,000 and, the Hoosier Dome for the state finals. So, so I really grew up um, loving that above anything else. And I've never covered anything since that I like anymore. I mean, all of World Series and Super Bowls and on and on and on, I still enjoyed high school basketball. Um, may, may I ask you a quick question game. about that Damon Bailey sure. game real quick before I sure. forget? Sure. Because I want you to finish your answer, but I'll forget this if I don't ask right now, so please forgive me. Did you talk to other sports writers – about that or coaches or people from other states who said there's 41,000 people at a high school basketball game? I mean, could they even imagine that? Or is that like, hey, you know what? It happens other places too. No, I remember talking to a few, not players, but I remember talking to a few coaches, particularly from Ohio, because I'm, I'm on the Indiana-Ohio line over here in Richmond. So, um, and Ohio fans itself is, you know, and, and they are a pretty, pretty big high school sports state, more football than basketball, but uh, yeah, that, that seemed like fantasy land, you know, 41,000. <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, as great as that moment was, I still think more indicative of, of, of Indiana back then was how many places you would see six and seven and eight, 9,000 in all in the same weekend. I mean, you know, that's the state finals, and it was a big deal. And Damon Bailey was a huge draw. So that certainly is a great moment in high school sports. But I always, I always thought the bigger evidence is – on a given Friday night back then, how many different places you would see packed in there, you know, in a in, in hundred places. So, um, but anyhow, that was, that was certainly a great moment. Uh, and, and I was very, I'm very, feel very lucky that I was there to see that. As far as the Indiana sports, um, you know, I, again, I kind of lucked out and, and come along, uh, you know, in IU basketball, uh, I was not there for their 76 championship but i did cover 81 and 87 um certainly bob knight is one of the more fascinating people uh, in sports i was ever around both for good and bad uh I, I i saw him enough to see the very best of him and see the few things that were some of probably the more regrettable parts of his nature I, I, bob knight will always be fascinating to me because there were always two of them to me uh there was the bob knight of, of the champion and the and the uh guy who had a, a program that was beyond question as far as being honest and, and all that. And then there was the Bob Knight that he just cringe and say, why, why do you need to act that way? Um, there will, those two will always be together. So when you have those the dichotomy of that and you have a guy that's successful, it's, it's just a fascinating person. So, so that made it really interesting. Um, I was there for the Holtz, uh, uh, for the Holtz era and to see Notre Dame, you know, sort of have a, a rebirth. And, and it's funny how many different times Notre Dame would win a game through years and years and years. Whenever they'd won three in a row, there'd, somebody would have a headline, the Irish are back. You know, <laughs> they always wanted Notre Dame to be back. And sometimes they were back and sometimes they weren't back. Uh, Can't we just say that Sports Illustrated has cursed us more than once? 
yeah. It's funny because in the press box at Notre Dame Stadium, they have all these these these, these covers, Sports Illustrated covers of different Notre Dame pictures. And I, there must be 30% of them, basically. The Irish are back. Or Notre Dame is back. It's a, That was a thing someone always wanted to jump on. So, you know, I, I was uh, uh, I was there for the uh, uh, so-called game of the century, where there are several games of the century, but the, the, probably the last one in the 20th century in Robbie Notre Dame was Florida State Notre Dame in 93. And that was number one versus number two. Notre Dame won, but it was where I was really lucky is I went back the next week. Oh. A lot of people said, why are you going back? And I said, well, you never know. So I went back uh, and lost Boston College, and uh, and cost the national championship. So, uh, but yeah, that was uh, you know a, a Saturday at Notre Dame. You know when the weather's you know nice fall and all that certainly uh, uh, certainly ranks way up there for, for things I enjoyed. Can we just uh, just pretend that Notre Dame Boston College game just didn't happen? <laughs> Were you, you there? Know, funny that what's interesting about that season they ended up number two. And Florida State ended up number one. So the only game that didn't matter that year in the final poll was the game of the century because Notre Dame won that one. And I remember writing a story about that saying, you know, I think Notre Dame should probably be number one. Even though they lost to Boston College, if you're looking, if it comes down between Notre Dame and Florida State, they played. They played on the field. You, you have head-to-head. And to say that game didn't matter – well, that was the game of the century, but it was the only game. Well, I wrote that column uh, for Gannett, and I got a note a month later from, from Lou Holtz, you know, thanking me for that. Uh, I don't think he's over – you talk about people not over games. I don't think he's over that whole season, how they didn't win the national championship. That well, I can, I can imagine that. I, I can imagine. Now, I said – now, the thing is, in 89, I remember when it – a little bit like that, Notre Dame tried to make a case they should be there instead of Miami, and Miami beat them during the season. I said Notre Dame had no argument that year, none, because they lost to Miami. But they've got an argument here. And so I think he appreciated that, so he snowed up there. As someone who was, went, to the ball, went to Ball State and is an Indiana kid his, his whole life, you know, except when work took you from place to place, but you grew up here and certainly understood uh, your capital yeah. city. If I had told you in the mid-70s or maybe late-70s when you were starting out or in your career that in a few decades, the city of Indianapolis will not only win the right to host a Super Bowl, but will completely redefine what it means for a city to hold a Super Bowl, you would have said? Uh yeah, no way. I mean, at that point in time, who would imagine a Final Four in, in Indianapolis, let alone like eight of them or how many ever there have been? It just didn't seem like the place. And then all of a sudden you look and there's this new facility and there's that new facility. Uh, and I think back in the 70s, I'm not sure anyone would have ever believed you'd see an NFL team playing in Indianapolis. So, so certainly there were a lot of moments that you never saw coming and you you mentioned this earlier included in that is that you would see a final four in downtown indianapolis and the team taking the floor would be the butler bulldogs uh you know you i don't think you, many people would have imagined that either um is it hard I, let me ask you a question about that game just real quick yeah did you root for butler um yeah, in my heart of hearts, I did. Uh, and not because it was Indianapolis, you know, Butler, not because I'm from Indiana. I rooted for George Mason. 
I mean, I, I, when they got there, you know, and, and that was in Indianapolis as well. Uh, you know, I, 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 I rooted for Davidson uh, when they almost got to the Final Four, Steph Curry. Um, I, that's the only thing, you know, you love to see an underdog do well. Now, you know, Butler, because I had covered a lot of their games, if you know teams uh, sometimes, and there are a good bunch of people, now, sometimes if you know teams, you see the other side of them, you root, you're not, you root against them, but you're not exactly on their corner. But in this case, uh, I covered them enough to know, you know, who they were and all that. And, and, and just of their underdog nature. Yeah. I certainly, I certainly was hoping they'd pull it off. And the thing about that year, what, what was surreal is that it was in and out, that it would work out that way. That Butler would get to the Final Four, you'd never imagine that, and it would be in Indianapolis, so you could put that. But if you looked at that team, it really wasn't that big of a surprise if you really studied that team, because they were really good. Now, the next year, I thought that was a supernatural act of magic that Butler got back to the Final Four. I mean, I, I saw them a lot that season where they didn't look like a team that could get in the NCAA tournament. And it just everything just fell into place at the right time. I mean, it, to me, that was an unbelievable march. Now, in 2010, it was it was sensational, and it was a great, great surprising story, but it wasn't that unbelievable if you looked at how good a team Butler was. The big sporting event uh, for television that's happening right now as we record this podcast is the ESPN series on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Did you cover that team? Did you get a chance to interview Michael Jordan much? And do you think that team and that era of the Bulls deserves the hype that it seems to get every single day? Uh, yeah, I covered um, – I was there <laughs> – Jordan, I, I was there in 82 when he hit the big shot against Georgetown. And I was there in 89 when he hit the big shot against Cleveland. And I covered all through the 90s, all their championship games. I, and as the, the, the series pointed out, I, you know, in the early episodes, what I, one of the things I remember most is just the, the open hatred between the Bulls and the Pistons. I mean, that was, <laughs> that was as, as raw as I think I've probably seen in sports between, you know, a lot of times you say these two teams don't like one another, you know, that's the bucket game. Indiana and Purdue don't like one another. Well, maybe not. Nothing compared to what that was. And so I remember that. And I was there the day the Pistons, uh, when the Bulls swept them, the Pistons, you know, went off the court and didn't shake hands. And then, and so through all of that, um, that, that's certainly the greatest dynasty I have ever personally covered. Now, I'm not saying it's the greatest dynasty above, let's say, the Celtics in the 60s. But, but uh, it was just really, really fascinating to watch that guy play. And, uh, what could he do next to surprise us? You know, what could he do next we haven't seen before? And you get into the, the last part of his era there and with Utah and the time he scored 40-whatever points the day he had food poisoning and, and then the way it ended on the last shot, which he'll get to and, you know, down the road in another episode. Uh, I, I really um, – I, I feel really lucky I was able to cover that. And, and it was also interesting in the years between while he was off playing baseball – to see what the Bulls tried to do. You know, I was there when they, when they lost to Orlando, uh, you know, what they were trying to do without Jordan or where they were in 95 when he came back toward the end of the year playing his first game, as we all remember, in Mark Square Arena. Um, so, um, yeah, he was, 
he special is not is way too too light of a word for him. What he what he meant to that game and what he meant to that decade, and how good those those guys really were. Larry Bird famously described or said, "quote He's God described. Excuse me. He's God disguised as Michael Jordan." I believe that was the night he put sixty three on the Celtics. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jordan in the ESPN series, or I've seen the quote in what I've read about it, said that that was a big deal to him. Like Larry Bird saying that about Jordan made a difference in Jordan's career in his public perception. Well, there's only two guys, you know, you're coming along and you're Michael Jordan, and you're immediately at that point in time going to be measured uh, with two guys, and that's that's Bird and Magic Johnson. And, and I think – to be uh, to get that kind of praise from one of those two, uh, you know, you can easily see what it would mean to him. And then I think that's why '91, even though he won six, I'm not sure Jordan was ever more emotional than he was in '91 when he won his first, because finally he had something that Bird and Johnson didn't had as well. And until he had that, uh, it was going to be very difficult to mention those three together. And he wanted very badly to to, to get into that very rare inner sanctum there. Before we end the podcast, we end the podcast with the same five questions to all of our guests, but I wanted to ask you an additional question before we launch into the usual five. And that additional question is, you're sitting at home tonight, uh, you're by yourself, or, or you have some downtime, you got a couple hours, two, three hours to kill. Which sports movie are you going to watch? Oh, well, this is going to sound so provincial if I say Hoosiers, but it is. I mean, it would be, it would be, the, one, it would be the one to watch. I hate to say that because, well, you're from Indiana. What else are you going to say? But the fact is that someone – how could you not love high school basketball in Indiana as much as I do and not love that movie? And also the fact that uh, I've done several stories with, with the guy who uh, who obviously is – story is heavily based upon that's Bobby Plump and Milan, which I figure was a great story. I'll tell you this. I have very few, I'm not a picture taken guy with my cell phone, but there are two pictures I have on my cell phone. And that's when, um, uh, the Hoosiers cast, some of the cast came to Hinkle Phil house. It's been several years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, I got my pictures taken with some of them. I, those pictures I kept, I, I, I don't take many pictures for those pictures I wanted to have. So yeah, I'll say Hoosiers. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grain Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is longtime award-winning Hall of Fame sports writer, Mike Lopresti, and we are ready for the five questions. Mike, if you are. Right ahead. What was your first job? Part-time job was keeping score for a local softball league where I saw some of the biggest characters I will ever see in my entire <laughs> life. Uh, first full-time job was at the uh, Richmond newspaper, the Palladium Item. 
First thing I ever covered was an American Legion baseball game. I do remember that. You remember who won? Uh, you got me there. Uh, <laughs> I hope I hope I had the right team win in the story. That's all I hope. Back then, I was that nervous. Well, sports writers are famous for remembering the pitch count in the bottom of the seventh and some double A game. So I wouldn't have been surprised if you'd have pulled it out, Mike. That's for sure. Second question: What was your first concert? The Carpenters, uh, and I believe it was in Newcastle in Chryslerfield House. Uh, I was a big Carpenters fan. Question number three: If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? If I stay with sports, uh, any baseball book by Roger Angel, who wrote for the New Yorker forever, and and uh, particularly the one where he was writing about baseball in the '60s and '70s, it, it, there is no clear picture of what baseball was like, and and uh, nobody better at just seeing all the beauty of it and the downsides of it and the ironies in it and all the different things that go into that game than he did. So any, any book by him. It seems that football and basketball have eaten into baseball's popularity. It was the national pastime. Perhaps it still is. You can argue that football is the national passion. But as a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, baseball was just so huge in a way it just isn't anymore. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll tell you what's different, I think. I I think in baseball, look at the World Series. If you go to the places where the World Series are being played, you know, let's say it's St. Louis and Boston. Well, in St. Louis and Boston, the World Series is as big as it's ever been. But it's become almost a regional sports event. If, if, If your team's not in it, you might watch it. You might not watch it. it, it it's just where football and, and I think to a little smaller degree, the NBA, it, it, the whole nation watches, you know, they're, they're watching it. They're just not watching their team. They're watching the sport. In baseball, I think people watch their team. I don't think they pay nearly as much attention to what's going on elsewhere as they used to. Uh, I think people still like to go sit and watch a game, just to sit there, and if the weather's nice, and have a hot dog, and all that goes into it. But I think uh, watching, you know, baseball as a spectator and as a TV spectator sport is not the same because people don't want to watch unless their team happens to be playing. Number four: If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens. Which event would you choose? I think I gave that one away from back. Uh, the you know I'm kind of a history buff, and 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 you tie sports and history together. The the day that Jesse Owens you know won the gold medals there in Berlin, and you're doing it in front of the Nazis, and, and Hitler's there and, and walks out and, and all that. Uh, I would love to have been there to see that. I would love to have been there to see the miracle on ice. Um, um, you know, those, what, those, about, uh, uh, what about, what uh, about, speaking of dominance, the Secretariat in the 73 Belmont? Yeah. Now, see, I, I saw that. As a, in fact, I saw that, of all places, the Reds Clubhouse. Uh, I was watching TV on that. I, w- I would love to have been there in person for that, but I did, I did see that as it happened, so I don't feel like I missed that. 
where I had some of these other things I, I, I feel like I missed. Uh, and was your, was your mouth just agape at oh, yeah. a horse yeah. winning by I, 33 I and a half lengths? Yeah. I still remember just being absolutely shocked as I'm, as anybody that's watching would, you didn't have to be much of a horse racing expert to understand just how unbelievable that was. You just, you just never see that. And, uh, um, so, um, I, I, I got a side story to that if you have time for it. I'm sure, sorry. go ahead, please. Well, this it has nothing to do with that day, but it has everything to do with the movie. Uh, if you saw the movie Secretariat. And uh, Diane Lane, who is one of my favorites, stars mm-hmm. in that. And I was at USA Today then, and I got a call from the PR person saying, you know, this movie's coming out, and you'll be reviewing it, I'm, we're sure, so would you like to have lunch with Diane Lane? Uh-huh. Now, I can't think of anything I would prefer doing to have lunch with Diane Lane. But in 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 the sake for the sake of being honest, I had to tell to him, say to him, I don't I, I don't review movies. I won't review in the movie. Here's the person you need to talk to. So I had to turn down Diane Lane. So when it, when you say Secretariat, I think of two things: one, how great that horse was and that dominance of that victory, and two, that movie and not having lunch with Diane Lane. A last question. Question number five. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, perhaps Diane Lane, two hours <laughs> off the record, whom would you choose? Oh, my. Um, and they have to be from sports? No, sir. Um, goodness gracious. If it was in sports, I think Mike Krzyzewski or Tom Brady, um, just to talk about greatness. Um, if it was not in sports, um, Tom Hanks, just to talk about what kind of query, because I'm a big movie buff. So just to talk about what his career has been, and, and I think it would be fascinating to to hear him talk about his story. So off the top of my head, I probably would come up with different ones if I had a while, but those are the ones that come off the top of my head. Since this is an Indiana podcast and Mike is a native Hoosier, I'm going to ask one more question to hopefully create what it would have been, or excuse me, correct what would have been an almost unpardonable sin. And that is, I've never, I did not ask you and want to ask you about covering the Indianapolis 500. Did you enjoy that? Did you do it often? And what was it like to talk to people and to explain to them how huge an event the 500 is? I never did during my days at USA Today, I, all those years, I never did the 500 for this reason. It would always be during the NBA playoffs. Uh, I was as a kid. I used to go a lot, and and just you know the vastness of it. it. It was always a place I loved to be, unless it was bad weather. Then it was the last place on earth I wanted to be. Uh, <laughs> if, if the rain came rolling in, but I never covered it much at all uh, through all those years because I would always be in Boston or Chicago or somewhere. Uh, a few times since then for IBJ and and and. I've, I've done a few stories from there for various things. And, and I've always been struck by how uh, friendly and 
and approachable and affable virtually everyone in that sport is. And I didn't know that. All those years, I was never around it much. So I didn't know. I knew, All I knew about the 500, that was big, and a lot of people went there and then went through some real hard times uh, there during the Civil War and auto racing. But um, in the times I have done it since then, a few times uh, from the business, from the working angle of a writer, uh, you know, I, 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 and particularly some of the legends, you know, I, 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 had, I did a story with Andretti and I did a story with Unser and then, and just how really, really um, friendly and approachable these guys were. And we're talking about legends and in a lot of sports, it's not always that case. So that's the thing that struck me as a guy who, who really hadn't spent a lot of time around. Thank you, Mike Lopresti, for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We've enjoyed the stories. We're, we have dozens and dozens of additional questions. If you ever want to come back on uh, the events you've covered, uh, decades worth of Hall of Fame sports writing. We just got a tiny sliver today, but we enjoyed it very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.